I, um, first of all, I want to say, you kids, uh, if you haven't left, and some of you haven't, because that was so cool and you love to see fire, uh, <laughs> candles, um, feel free to head back. You, many of you are heading now. Um, <clears throat> I have to tell you, there's uh, joy in my heart. Um, the, the couple that was standing here and sharing this moment with us, Bob and Pam George, uh, there's a little-known uh, story, maybe, but um, uh, Pam actually arrived. Uh, they have uh, five kids, and they came one Sunday when uh, Debbie and I were brand new and, in fact, had not been officially called to come here as a pastor. And uh, we met in the park that Sunday, I recall, at Summer Lake Park. We had a, a gathering there, and one of my Sundays, one of two, to candidate, as they call it in church speak, to be the potential pastor that you would ask to come, uh, was in the park. And so Pam came to um, spy, I think, or scout, uh, the new guy, and, um, and Bob came a short time later, had some responsibilities to wrap up, and it, it's just been a joy. We've been really great friends and best friends, and uh, I've had the privilege of marrying several several other children, and it's just they're they're amazing. Just uh, yeah, so we love you, we love you, and thanks for the nostalgic moment. Speaking of uh, great moments, uh, I I don't know if this is a good comparison, but thanks to Vicky Kinez and an army of her best friends and my best friends, this uh, church worship center we call it became something right out of a Hallmark movie. I mean, it's really, isn't that great? It's really cool. I'll do, I'll do one more than that. If, you, if you're not married and thinking about it, this is a perfect time to do it, you guys. I mean, you don't need flowers. You don't need nothing. Just get in here, and, and you got you to gotta minister. We can pull this thing off. And, uh, and what a great time and place. And, and you know what? Let me just get out of the way because this is the real deal right here. I mean, that's, uh, that's really special. Uh, if you do come up and have a look uh, uh, or your children want to, come with them because um, those, are, those are very special. Um, we call it the Holy Family, respectfully. So uh, it's a careful thing, but it's a good thing. And uh, can I give one more personal thing? Um, Right now, he's 2 in the morning on Monday, but my son turned uh, 28 today. And uh, yeah, it's really cool. It's, um, it's like another one of, those, uh, one of those things where you can't share it together. He's 9,210 miles from here, but uh, happy birthday, Trevor, and I love you. And in fact, it was this day, um, 28 years ago, he was born. It was a Sunday that year as well. And so uh, some of you may still remember John Ribley preaching um, on my behalf. Uh, we had a plan in place, and I said, oh, it's not going to happen, you know, John, but just, just in case. And sure enough, <laughs> that morning it was go time, and um, so John preached uh, uh, for me, and he's still here. So it's really kind of a fun, <laughs> nostalgic morning for me. But um, um, so I want to uh, transition this morning into uh, the message that uh, God's given me, and uh, we're going to share communion, as you can tell, in a little bit, and that'll be uh, a really special time like the George is sharing now. But um, I want you to think about stuff you face where you um, 
the situation in front of you has you wondering, maybe scratching your head and, and trying to determine if you have the resources to work with to make it happen. And you're, some of you hopefully are thinking of ideas right now. You're thinking about work tomorrow. <laughs> or you're thinking about overcoming a situation that continues to, to, to sort of uh, trip you up. Um, or maybe you're thinking about a uh, complex relationship that you're thinking, I don't know how I'm going to do that. I just don't have the idea in mind. It's not clear how I'm going to pull that off. Some of you might be thinking financial stuff. Um, it, it's a situation where it has you kind of going, ah, I'm going to give it a go or I, I'm not even sure I can do that because I'm not sure that the pieces I need in place can, um, can pull this off. Uh, so sometimes we think about things like that. We think in terms of categories like money. Take a bill that you have, not something, something exotic like a new car or trip someplace, but just a plain bill. You might wonder, do I, do I have the, the money I need to pay that bill? Or for you, it might be time. Can I spare the time uh, to do something that's important, that, that needs to happen, and it, but it'll take time, and I'm just I'm swamped. Can I do that? Maybe ability is the biggest one of all, where we sort of self-assess and, and wonder, do I have the skills uh, to, to do something or say something that I'm drawn to, but not sure I can do. All right. Maybe you've heard this saying, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Now, that all, all of a sudden takes away the need for a degree or something like that. It certainly removes the need for seminary or something. Uh, seminaries are fine, by the way. Um, all right, so... Um, the, there's a list of people in our Bibles that you could actually say that of. That he did not, qual he did not call a qu highly qualified top candidate. Not at all. Uh, but he tapped somebody and then transformed them into what it would be and take pull it off. This list is much longer, but um, you probably heard pieces of it along the way. Take Noah right out of the gate. He drank too much. Just being honest, he did, didn't he? And wouldn't that be a cause to go, no, go around him, find somebody else. Okay, let's go on. Abraham, how do you set in motion a big plan, a epic Everest size plan on a guy that's 90. Really? Uh, no takeaway of 90-year-olds, Dad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so Abraham, he was, he was too old. Isaac, get your head in the game, right? He's a dreamer. Uh, the list goes on to include Jacob. He lied. Forked tongue. 
Can you count on him? I don't know. Uh, Joseph, not through anything he did except that he was, he was kind of a bratty little brother. I would not have liked a brother like that because I was the brother like that, actually, so <laughs> for the record. But, um, but, but he was abused. Uh, and then, of course, you have Moses who had a stuttering problem. I, I, I don't, what, 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 what will I say? Came words from the greatest leader, arguably, of all time. And then there's Gideon, who was afraid. Uh, so this morning, let's take a closer look at the last one I just mentioned, Gideon. And if you have your Bibles or a Bible app, would you turn in it to Judges 6, 7, and 8? We're not going to cover all that, but we will capture a few of the important pieces of Gideon's story. Um, my title today is God's Got This. Anything you're thinking about, and certainly it applies. In fact, I get it's my, the source of everything I'm saying to you from God's Word. So Gideon chapter 6. Uh, while you're turning there, turning uh, to find that location in the Old Testament, you, you need to know Gideon was one of 12 judges that spanned 325 years from the time of, uh, of uh, Joshua's passing to the uh, sort of arrival, if you will, on the scene of Israel's first king, um, and, uh, or uh, Samuel, first prophet, and uh, then what followed Saul and David and beyond that. So that's a 325-year span, and he's almost square in the middle. He's the fifth, Gideon is. He arrives 200 years after Joshua had died, and get this, you need to know this, Israel by that time in 200 years had fallen uh, fast and far into spiritual darkness. It was not a good time. It was also the time of the Midianites. They were an enemy that was supposed to have been completely eliminated. If you read Numbers 31 later today, you'll find the details. But for reasons that God resisted and, and, and opposed and Moses called out, some of them were allowed to remain, these Midianites. Um, so by the time of Gideon, fast forward now, you, uh, you can see that they have grown big by the narrative we're about to read. They had become, in fact, vast in number and vicious in their opposition and hardship that they caused Israel. Chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years God gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Okay? Because the power of, the, of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared. This is what they had to do to live. They prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. They're hiding to survive. Verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites and the Malachites, these are people from the east. Just think of them as um, uh, you got Israel uh, and then to the east of them, 
folks from those lands and south, would be the Midianites, uh, invaded their country. So the Israelites have planted their crops, quietly hoping to harvest them and actually desperately in need of their food. Uh, the Midianites and Amalekites and others spoiled all of that. So they camped on the land and ruined crops all the way to Gaza. That means the mayhem caused by the Midianites was all the way from the eastern side of the Jordan all the way west to the Mediterranean and Gaza. They just, just ransacked the place. Um, talk about not feeling like they could, the people living at that time could get ahead. They camped on, on the land, ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, didn't spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. Can you, can you hear sort of an um, ethnic cleansing going on here? It's not far from that. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts, meaning there's lots of them and they consume everything in their way. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the, impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for his help. Vast, vicious, causing them to cry out to God. Please do something. Rescue us. And let the record say, they, they are in a spot of their own making. Let's not forget how this chapter began. Still, they did what I would do. They cried out. They, they said, God, this is bigger than us. We won't survive this. And so God sees. And, 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 he, and, and he doesn't have to look hard to see. He sees the struggle that they're in, and he sets in motion a plan that begins in the next verse to rescue them. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Talking about what he's done and capable of doing. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them all out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. That's who did this for you. So do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. And the angel of the Lord continued, came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, which is up in the Jezreel Valley, just sort of east uh, slightly from Carmel, um, Mount Carmel, uh, the northeast coast, uh, northwest coast of Israel. Okay, so that's, that's the location we're talking about. They, um, this, this angel came, sat down under the oak in Ophrah, and uh, that belonged to Joash the Abiezite, where his son... Here's an easier word. He named him better than he had. Uh, Gideon was threshing, watch this, let your mind imagine where he is. Threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. This almost has an image of the, the work of Cory Ten Boom um, in World War II to hide Jews who were fleeing for their lives. And, um, and, and, 
and she hid them under the floor. It's a fascinating um, hiding place, the story. Uh, I get that picture that, that, that Gideon is here just threshing wheat, but in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites where they might not look for it. And verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. All right. Um, this, this scene reminds me, it takes me back, and, and we're helped in that because we're told to look back. Verse 9 does take us back to the days when God did a big rescue in the days of Moses. And in those days, um, similar scene, really. Israel was badly oppressed. It wasn't good times. It would be said of them, it, it was a terrible time to live as an, as a, as an Isra Israeli, a Jew. In Egypt, because you were slaves and far less than people, and that season of suffering for you, if you were one of them, it didn't last a couple of years like we've been through and whatever we want to call the, the stuff we've been through. This lasted 430 years. It was a long time. It's a lot of generations of we're, we can't get ahead. There's no gain here. We're not going to recover. 430 years of that, it's all told in Exodus. And their suffering in that time was horrendous. Um, chapter 2 of Exodus ends wonderfully. It says um, they, they cried out to God. I've got to read it for you. You don't have to turn there. I just want to make sure you can kind of hear the heart of God. Chapter 2, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. This is, during, this is years earlier. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery, listen to this, went up to God. It went up to God. And God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant years earlier with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And the chapter ends this way. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Being concerned about somebody means you see their situation and you have this sadness in your view of their situation. You realize this is a very, very hard situation. You don't go, hey, you know, you did it yourself. This is a God that says, I care about that. Um. Can I stop for a second and say something to us today? It's a good time to say it. To be reminded that God sees what you're going through. He does. I, I'm, that's not an application point in my notes. That's a reality we've lived more in this year than I've ever lived in my life. He sees the suffering. And he doesn't go, hope you guys buck up and hang in there. He comes alongside us. And he wants to come alongside anybody in a tough spot. 
you ask my Debbie how she made it through this time, she will say, God carried me through this time. Which implies God saw me in this time and cared about me and dispatched countless people like you. He does that still. Um, so Moses is a guy tapped by God. And Moses, by the way, didn't go, great, just waiting to hear from you, God, here we go. No, you need to read chapter 3 of Exodus and chapter 4, and you'll see Moses going, <laughs> what? No. No, no, I'm not, no, I don't have, and five different times, no, God, I'm not the guy. You've got somebody else. You got me mixed up with somebody else. I can't even talk. I, I'm, what, I don't even know who you are. Who are you? Uh, it just went on and on like that. Five times. What if they laugh at me? What if, it, what if, what if, what if? All the reasons we all come up with. So was Gideon, that guy. He too struggled with God in similar ways. And it picks up right where we left off here in Judges 6. Um, look at verse 13 and see his first response. See verse 13, everybody? <laughs> you just said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. <laughs> this is, see my hand? This is, pardon me. This is, hold up, y'all. This is, are you for real? Me? Okay, I'm not making this up. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Most of us don't hear the emotion of those words. We need to. Remember he's in the wine press, threshing wheat, trying to survive? Where are all the wonders that we've heard about in the Moses story? That's what he's getting at. People talk about that all the time. It's been a long time since we saw that. Got to feel the tone here. Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Our ancestors have told us. But now the Lord has abandoned us. He's done doing cool. Maybe it was a one-time miracle. Maybe he's used them up. I don't know how deep his reaction was, but it was strong. It was human. It was Gideon going, no, no. The Lord's abandoned us, and he's actually given us into the hand of Midian. There's blame in those words, by the way. We're hesitant to say stuff like that. It doesn't sound real churchy, but it's real reality. The Lord turned to him. See that? He's been talking to an angel. The Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? Here he goes again. Uh, pardon me, Lord. <laughs> How can I save Israel from the, the mess we're in? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. There you have it. He sounds exactly like the Apostle Paul, 
who says in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm, I was born, he's talking about all these cool people that got to walk with Jesus in the day. And then here comes this late arrival, untimely born, he calls himself. And he says, I'm, I'm the, I was the last and I was the least. Those are two words of self sort of uh, kind of uh, critique. I'm not a big deal. Well, Gideon leaves no doubt he feels exactly the same way. I have doubts about being used by you. I have doubts about you coming through. So then God makes a statement in verse 16 to respond to that. The Lord answered, I will be with you. I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. The chapter goes on and finishes with Gideon saying, well, you know, I need proof. I need, you know, the fleeces, and you need to read the rest of the chapter if it's been a while since you read that. Um, and, and then before Gideon's hesitant heart gets settled, God reveals his strategy for, for victory over these Midianites that he's going to tell them something now that's supposed to be reassuring. But I've just put my, I've sat in his seat all week again, and I'm convinced it was anything but settling. Will you turn to chapter 7 now? And you'll see what I'm talking about here. Verse 2. Um, Chapter 7 of Judges. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. <laughs> you have this gonna, you're going to laugh louder in a minute. I cannot deliver Midian into your hands or Israel, um, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me, they will talk. Now announce to the army, that you have. Anyone who trembles with fear about the prospects of facing the Midianites and turns back, they can leave Mount Gilead. No problem, no harm, no foul. And look how the verse ends. So 20, <laughs> 22,000 men left and went home and left him with how many? 10,000. Will you please add those two numbers? His top troop count was what? Yeah, there you go. 32,000 people, all right? So we got that piece in place. Midianites were a lot bigger than this. Look at verse 4. The Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. <laughs> For real? Most of them just left. Take them down to the water and I will thin out their ranks. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. And the Lord told him, separate them this way. Those who lap up the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Okay? So what does a dog do? It, it sees water, puts his head down, and drinks. Others do it differently. Watch verse 6. 300 of those men drank from cupped hands. So they scoop, they get down, they get water, 
and they're doing this, cupped hands. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. With me? Probably not able um, military people. Uh, the others, 300 of them now. The Lord said to Gideon, with these 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. So my numbers tell me he's like 99%. Uh, all, they all left. I got 300 left. And I will save you using those 300. Notice Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. All right. Let's understand a few details. I said Midianites were bigger. If you go to chapter 8, verse 10, you will see that they, in fact, are monstrous in size. 135,000 of them. Okay? So you got 135,000 in the before all this thinning went on. There was about a one to four, one good guy to four bad guys. One Israel, four Midianites. Okay? After all this, the guys went home. The numbers changed. <laughs> it's one to 450. So there's one good guy to 450 bad guys. You're about to watch, yesterday was the, the uh, state high school football championship game. Tualatin versus uh, Central Catholic. I don't even know how it turned out. Central Catholic, yeah. They got God on their side, that's why. So anyway... Uh, <laughs> But anyway, I'll just say, I'll just go on. <laughs> no takeaway if you're from Tualatin, but uh, you don't have Catholic in your name. But anyway, um, here's the deal. Um, that would be like yesterday's championship game was Tualatin versus the Raiders. Now that's a bad example. They would have probably. Thanks for stating the obvious. <laughs> so no, you got you get what I mean. It's like it's it's the numbers are not in your favor. You'll get killed if you're a high school team and take on an NFL team. They will they will have their way, and you will lose badly. That's exactly what these numbers look like. Um, however. Um, what wasn't good according to God was too many men are going to cause you to do something I can't have you do. And that's to trust in you. That, to take, to, to, that's to not have your eyes on the core truth that I'm trying to teach you. I've got this. I put you, I could argue whether I caused this problem with the Midianites. I don't, I'm speaking as God right now. Of course he didn't. But, but, um, I want to keep you from saying, hey, who whooped them? 300 of us, that's all it took. You seeing the truth here? It didn't take even 300. God was trying to get their attention like he's getting ours and saying, I've got this. 
You're in over your head. The numbers are not on your side in whatever scenario you started thinking about this morning. Can't stop thinking about this morning. But God says, I've got this. Um, when you hear that you have 300 men to go into battle against a lot more than that, um, it's, it's, uh, it's the stuff most sensible people would say just forfeit or surrender or run for your life, right? Isn't that what we do in a situation like this? Um, impossible in every way. Certainly improbable. Um, but something happened to Gideon to make him say what he did in verse 15. He heard about a dream that seemed to indicate Israel would prevail. And he bowed down and worshipped, and then he returned to the camp. And look at the first things out of his mouth. First words, get up, he says to his vast troop count of 300. <laughs> he probably called them by names. I mean, it didn't take, you know. Get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. And he divided the 300 uh, into three companies. So a hundred each company placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he says. There's boldness in his words now. Follow my lead. This is the guy that said, not me, God. I'm too little. I'm from the, the tribe of Manasseh. And, and, and I'm the least important guy in the whole crew. This is the same guy who's saying, get up. Watch me. Follow my example. Um, for the Lord and for Gideon, you are to, when the, when the signal comes, you're to blow those trumpets. There's no weapons here. You seeing that? Blow those trumpets, then from all around the camp of the Midianites that we have surrounded, blow them and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And sure enough, 19, Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed guards and they blew their trumpets and broke their jars that were in their hands. So just read commotion, confusion. It's like a flash grenade that went off in ancient times. The three companies also blew their trumpets, smashed their jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, and they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites awoke with a start. They're in full panic mode, crying out as they ran for their lives. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to who are the men he's talking about it's not this is not god's people the midianites drew their swords and sliced each other to pieces um what a moment 
And um, I'm struck by the timeline of this story of Gideon in a big way. Um, tracing all, all the way back to the beginning, I could not find a single shred of evidence supporting the notion that Gideon was somehow born brave. None. He was a farmer. We've captured that. Scratching out a living in a very hard time to live. And um, then God said he wanted to do something that was, can we call it just God-sized? And, and, and he sends this angel, and he says those words in verse, whatever, 16 earlier. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. What makes a man or a woman mighty? Is it the courage they have? Or is it they trust, the trust they exhibit that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my eyes on him. I'm going to walk with a God in a very, very uh, improbable situation to turn out our way. That's the situation you and I need to think about in our own lives. It, it does not look good. You don't need anybody to tell you that, but you, you can't get you can't make it better by pep talking yourself into, well, it's not that big a deal. It's bigger than big. Um, something happened to Gideon and it seems to have changed him. And I don't think it was just immediate in the moment. I think it was a gradual change that had him beginning to actually believe. God, I'm smart enough to know numbers. They're not in our favor. But, but I believe that you're big enough, God, to pull it off anyway. Are those words you need to start saying to yourself? I'll bet it is. I'm with a group of men every week, and we pray for a lot of folks that are in really deep water. Um. Gideon believed that God somehow is going to use a guy like him, the least and the last. And, and, and he believed that God could do a lot with very little. He believed that God doesn't need great resources to see great things happen. Do you believe that? I believe that. Um, I, I believe that that's the story of the Bible, actually. I think there's evidence everywhere. And you expect me to say David defeated Goliath. How many stones did it take? Well, we can talk all day long. Theologians love that. Well, how come he picked up five and only, what, did he have doubt? Get over yourself. It took one to put that giant down. That's all. That's all that matters. So little David takes on the great menacing Goliath, and down he went. Do you realize in the New Testament, that's 1 Samuel 17, clear over in the New Testament, John chapter 6, the chapter opens with Jesus not having enough food to feed his disciples. But God's got this, so much so that he in fact fed with Five loaves of barley, um, 
which the boy volunteered. I would give it up too. It's barley, but um, uh, and, and two fish, right? They, they, and that's all it took to feed thousands. You see, it takes very little meager resources for God to do really amazing things. This is a big idea that I'm trying to circle around this morning. It seems that God's trying to teach us that, that truth. And, um, that, that something that, that has always seemed to you or to me to be impossible uh, is perfectly plausible if you're God. I, you know, we say God's not in time like we're in time and I'm, my time's up now and all that. But, but, but God's not bound by possible. Jesus said, you know, um, with man, lots of things are impossible. But with God, that doesn't exist. Nothing's impossible. Um, so I want to leave you with words from Jesus. He said uh, stuff like, um, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15. Those are great words. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Every branch that bears fruit will be pruned so it can bear more fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the context of Jesus' words. The Apostle Paul came along and said, I can do all things, comma, through him, Christ, who strengthens me. See how it works together? I know you do. He said, and my God shall supply all, not some, all of my needs. You say, well, they're big, Pastor. They're really big. Um, not for God, they're not. And probably a sweeping principle all of us would do better to put in our hearts. In whatever situation that you look at and you've been saying to yourself, I cannot do it, it's too big, Look at the numbers. God agrees with you. You can't do it. It is too big. Then he says this statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy comes from God. God. To do whatever the impossible is that you face and that I face. And I'm looking in the eyes of people who know family members and friends who need to hear this truth. But, but give them that, the gift of sharing it with them this Christmas. Just tell them, I think God's bigger than what we're going through. I think impossible you and I can call it improbable, but don't call it impossible. Communion is in front of us, and um, we're going to share that. It represents the ultimate example of God doing something immeasurably great. Can I just say it? Through the frailty of his son. Everybody that's got a salvation story talks about 
Jesus. If you're talking about anything else, you do not have the Gospels. You do not have salvation according to the Bible. Please. And if you're going, wow, that is a changer in my thinking, talk to me. Let's not guess about that. Let's talk about that. But the truth is, God did something immeasurably uh, way bigger than imaginable by saving anybody, but all were saved through his son. Amen? So if you don't have his son, you don't have the life, okay? Which means you got to change that up today. Now you got to get, you don't have to get better. You don't got to improve yourself. You got to come to Jesus and say, I got, I got a project for you. My life. Amen? I want to read you these words from Isaiah chapter 53. Um, unbelievable description of what God did as a result of his son's suffering. Coming to this earth, born at the right time, we're told, and went to the cross 33 years later. He was despised and rejected. These Bible words to describe his glorious son, Jesus. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him, and we looked the other way. He was despised, and we didn't care at all. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. If it's not too painful, make it personal. He was pierced for your rebellion. He was crushed for your sin and for mine. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. And all of us, every one of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. Yet, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on his son. There's no more vivid picture than the baby in a manger, in a cradle, before a cross that he would hang from on your behalf and mine. 